will be on Genesis 46, verses 1 through 7. This is Genesis. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down in Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. This is the word of the living God. Please be seated. God is sovereign over all. Let me say that again. God is sovereign over all. We sing it in our songs. We declare it in our sermons. We share it in our Bible studies and our seminars until life hits us. Until something goes wrong in our lives. In most cases, remembering God being sovereign over all kind of fades into the background as we battle the most recent issues of our lives. I'm so glad that we've been studying this Joseph saga. Because I am one of those times when it would be easy to forget that God is sovereign over all. As you know, I'm beginning my studies at uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary for my doctorate. Well, from the moment that I signed up, the roof, in a sense, has caved in on us. I uh, was serving in the uh, Baptist Convention of New York's Executive Board and the Administrative Committee of that, as we were transitioning the Baptist Convention of New York into a brand new uh, structure and style. And so in August, and then all the way through September, we started having these administrative meetings that were going once, twice, sometimes three times a week. Uh, you know, totally unexpected in terms of, of time. And then when that was finished... My godly mother-in-law passed away, and that meant uh, planning, preparing for the funeral, but also my wife uh, is the executor of the estate, so it meant working on that for the past uh, several months to bring all of that to conclusion. And then my daughter Abigail decided to have her baby. Uh, which meant that my wife Karen ended up going out and spending uh, five weeks or so out with Abigail, um, which meant being chief cook and bottle washer. Matthew helped with that, but uh, it, uh, it added some extra uh, events to my life. And, uh, and, and on top of that, I came back from West Virginia with a cold, that has continued for almost six weeks now. Each week seems to get worse instead of better. As a matter of fact, as you know, I don't go to doctors. I went to the doctor yesterday. <laughs> so uh, it's just one thing after another. And of course, we're in the Christmas season with the special events uh, that we're planning, preparing. And we decided that we would also change the whole ministry of the church 
um, beginning in January with the uh, Romans study and the mentoring. So um, all of that means that my homework that I'm supposed to be doing in preparation for my studies, like, well, God, you are sovereign over all, right? <laughs> this didn't surprise God. He knew what was happening in my life. And so as, as God is, is sovereign over all, he was also sovereign over the fact that our study right now has been this study of Joseph and the perseverance of Joseph as he trusted the sovereignty of God in everything that he was experiencing. God is sovereign over all. He was sovereign over Joseph's life around 4,000 years ago. He was sovereign over the planning of the life of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And he is sovereign over Chris Gardner's life now, as well as over your lives. As we lit the candles in this third week of Advent, we mentioned the fact that these candles for this year are going to be representing something different than they usually do. The first two candles are going to represent, in a sense, the Old Covenant and, and God's sovereign work over the Old Testament. The pink candle is going to represent the first coming of Jesus Christ and, and how God sovereignly planned all of that. The next candle, how God is sovereignly working in the church until then. And then the center candle, the white candle, will represent Jesus Christ in his second advent that God is planning and sovereignly working out as well. And all of that then brings us to the theme from this passage this morning, that the advent season reminds us that God sovereignly rules over all aspects of life in this universe. Sovereign over all. And whether we look at Joseph's saga from the nearly 4,000 years ago to now, we see that God is at work. And so I want you to notice how God is glorified by our recognizing his sovereignty. God is glorified when we recognize that in spite of what seems to be happening in our lives that may not seem to be good, that God is orchestrating that. The enemy may be fighting against us. We may be falling into temptation and even into sin. And yet it isn't catching God by surprise. And he is working all things for his glory. He is working in our world. This morning I want us to jump back then. As we look into chapter 45 and 46 and put ourselves into that situation. What is happening in the life of Joseph, in his brothers, and in the life of Jacob the father. And how do we see God sovereignly at work there as they recognize that this is God who has been orchestrating everything, not themselves. Throughout Genesis, Genesis this has been true. Everything that we have seen in Genesis so far, we have seen how God has moved everything for his plan and his purpose from eternity past. And certainly, we have seen it clearly in the story of, Josh, of Joseph. For instance, look at chapter 45, verse 7. And God sent me, this is Joseph talking, before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. What's the background to that? Well, the background to that is Joseph at 17 years of age is sold off as a slave by his brothers who had originally planned to kill him, but now decide that they want to make some money on it, and so they sell him as a slave. That's the, that's the background for Joseph making this statement that God sent me before you. It wasn't you guys working things you know, to, to get rid of me. 
It was God who planned on me being here in Egypt so that I could save your lives. Do you look at your life that way? Do you see God at work in you? Joseph looked at the past 20-some years of his life, and he said, this is God. This is God working in everything. Being sold as a slave, being falsely accused, being tossed into prison, spending 13 years as a slave or as a prisoner. And to be able to say, this is God at work in my life. What an awesome thing that is if we would see our lives the same way. So notice that we see God's sovereignty in God's revelation to us. See, Joseph had an advantage that most of us don't have, and that is Joseph had God-given dreams. And not only that, God also gave him the ability to interpret the dreams. This comes out in verse 45 when Joseph is talking to his brothers, and he says in verses 5 and 6, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Now, I said we needed to set ourselves back into uh, that setting. You be one of Joseph's brothers. Maybe you're Naphtali, or maybe you're Issachar, or Dan, or Gad. All right, maybe you're Reuben, or maybe you're Judah. You're one of the brothers of Joseph. They've sold him off as a slave. They think that he's either dead, or he's still a slave someplace. And now, standing before them, is the second most powerful individual in all of Egypt. And he has just said, hi, I'm Joseph, the brother that you sold into slavery. How do you feel? What is going on in your head at that particular moment? He has just sent all of the, the, his handlers out of the room. What's he planning? If I'm his brothers, I'm thinking he's planning on sending the guards back in. They're either going to kill us or they're going to imprison us or something. Instead, Joseph talks to them. God had revealed to Joseph these seven years of famine. His brother's heads are spinning, and now he's talking about, well, we've had two years of famine. We're going to have five more. They're trying to put all of this together. That had to drive them back to the dreams that Joseph had had years before. To see him now, to hear him talking about the future the way that he was, this had to drive him back, them back, to what had happened 20 years, 22 years earlier in his life. God had given revelation. Revelation to Joseph. Revelation to Pharaoh. The interpretation of the dream as well. But you and I do have something that Joseph's brothers didn't have, we also have direct revelation from God. You see, we have the scriptures. We have the Holy Bible. That is God's direct revelation to us. The biblical writers composed these books underneath the inspiration and the power of the Holy Spirit just as clearly writing down the revelation of God as Joseph was given that revelation in his dreams. The Bible is God's pure word of truth for life for you and life for me. The Gospel writers knew, for instance, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. How did they know that? Not just because he worked miracles, not just because he was a great teacher, but because he fulfilled the scriptures that God had already given to them, the revelation that God had shared with them. 
And as they looked at those messianic passages, they saw Jesus Christ in the Old Testament promises. God is sovereignly in control of all things through his divine revelation. And he has spoken to us as clearly as he spoke to Joseph. But I also want you to notice that we can see God's, revel, uh, God's sovereignty in our reflection on what God is doing in our lives. He has given us his revelation, but also as we look at our lives. How many times were you in the midst of a, a tough situation and you thought God had forgotten you? until after the situation was over, and you looked back on it, and you went, oh, wow, God was working here, God was working here. I didn't even see it. It's happened to me numerous times in my life. We're more like Joseph's brothers and like Jacob than we are like Joseph. We don't always see clearly the direct revelation that God has given to us. Most of us don't see visions. We don't see dreams but we can reflect on what is happening in our lives. Remember back in chapter 37, Joseph told his brothers his two dreams. And the Bible says this, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. He had the dreams. uh, Jacob, Joseph's father, listens to the dreams, he kind of challenges his son, but then he reflects on it. He thinks about it. And now 22 years later, he sees how God has worked it out. He sees God sovereignly having done that great work. It reminds me of another passage of Scripture, one that we read in the New Testament. Mary. When Jesus is born, the shepherds have visited them in Bethlehem of Judea. And we read in Luke 2, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. We need to do more of that in our lives as well. We need to think and reflect upon what is happening in our lives. Looking at the situations of our lives and saying, how is God at work here? How is God sovereignly making these things come together? And when we do, we will see God, even in the darkest times of our lives, we will see God at work. Now let's jump back then into our two chapters, into Genesis chapter 45, and look at verses 27 and 28. But when they told him, Jacob is the him, When they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, It's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And you see what it was. He had a hard time mentally accepting what the brothers were saying about Joseph. So what did he do? He reflected on the things around him. He saw the gifts that Joseph had sent. And as a result of that, reflecting on that, he sees God's hand in it, and he's able to say, Joseph's alive. We should be doing the same thing. Being able to see day after day that God is sovereignly at work in you and in me. But notice that we see God's sovereignty in reverence as well. You see, it's, it's one thing to accept the Bible as the revelation of God. It's another thing to look at our lives and kind of, well, I think this is God's hand, I think that's God's hand at work in us. But we could still be like Job in the midst of all of that suffering when he 
basically said, God, if there was a judge that was an impartial judge, and you were the defendant, and I was the prosecutor, God, you'd lose. Even though he knew that God was God, and he was not, and he acknowledged that all the way through the book, still when he looked at the situation of his life, he saw the trouble that he was in. He was like, God, you're just not justifying me. You're not, you're not, you're not helping me when you should be helping me. And a lot of times, that's what happens in our lives. We, we know that the Bible is true. We look at the situations of our life, and we say, well, I, I can see that God possibly might be working this way, that way. But you still feel the pressure of it. The sense of God's sovereignty at work comes out in this text, in chapter 46, the first verse. In verse 1 of chapter 46, we read, So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now we've been walking with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob through all of their situations in life. And if you recall, Beersheba was the home setting of Isaac, Jacob's father. So Jacob is leaving his Location. He is heading towards Egypt, and he pauses in Beersheba. Why is he doing that? Does he just need a place to rest? No, he's stopping in Beersheba because God had given promises to Isaac in Beersheba. Promises that went back to the Abrahamic promise that God was going to sovereignly give them the land and, and bless them and do all the wonderful things of the Abrahamic promise. And it had been in Beersheba that God had spoken that again to Isaac. And Isaac had built an altar there and worshipped God. And now Jacob, Isaac's son, is, is coming back through, and he's stopping at Beersheba. And what does he do? Maybe he sees the, the broken parts of, of uh, the altar that Isaac had built. Or maybe he is purposefully coming to that spot, but he is coming to lift up and exalt the name of God and to thank God that he has sovereignly overseen everything that has happened. Paul writes in Philippians 4, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. You know, Jesus lived that out better than anyone that has ever lived. He constantly knew that his Father was sovereignly in control. He was able to say that I don't do anything except for what I've seen my Father do, and I don't say anything except for what I've heard my Father say. His life was a continual sacrifice then of worship to God. And we who are called to follow him, to be his disciples, we should be modeling the same thing in our lives. Worshiping and giving thanks to God in reverence because we know that he is sovereignly in control of all things. When our eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit to see that God is in charge of our lives and that he is working all things for the good, then we should have a heart that overflows with thanksgiving, <clears throat> that bows in reverence before God, even as we read in Hebrews 13. <clears throat> Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. To express to God, even in our darkest times, even in our hardest times, God, I thank you that you are in control. I may not be able to see on the other side of this great cloud that's blocking me right now, but I know that you are in control. Trusting him in all of that. In that way, God is glorified as in reverence we recognize 
his revelation and reflect upon his work in us. Joseph's story, Jesus' life, manifest for us that truth. Nothing is outside of God's control. Reverence him, thank him, worship him, and acknowledge his name. As we continue to reflect on these two chapters of of Genesis, notice as well that God is glorified by our receiving his sovereignty. It's one thing to recognize that God is sovereign. It's another thing to accept it in our lives. To accept what's going on. You see, Joseph's brothers refused to accept and recognize God's sovereignty when Joseph had those dreams. Joseph shares the the dreams with his brothers. Joseph is not saying, hey, look, guys, I think I'm going to become your masters. All he simply shared with them was the revelation that God had given the dreams that had come to him. And as Joseph tells Pharaoh, when Pharaoh has had two dreams, Joseph says to Pharaoh, the second dream is to confirm the first dream. God has said this will happen. Well, Joseph had his two dreams. He shares those two dreams. That means that God has said it was going to happen, but they did not receive it. They sought to fight against God's purpose. They sold Joseph off to the Midianites. And now, over 20 years later, what are they going to do with this new revelation that God has given? Are they going to accept the sovereignty of God working in Joseph's life and now in their lives? Or are they going to rebel against that as well? Well, they accept it. We see it in verse 21. The sons of Israel did so. Did what? received, accepted the gifts that Joseph was giving and the instruction that he was giving to them. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for their journey. I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, but if if I was in their situation, my head would have been spinning all over the place. I don't know how they were even pulling anything together here, seeing all that was going on. But with all that, one thing was certain. God, they knew, was the one who was at work. Joseph had made that very clear. It wasn't Joseph's ability. It was God who sovereignly had planned and prepared it all. Their reflection on what had taken place made them recognize that God was divinely organizing all of this. And as a result, they received God's word through Joseph. And they received the warning that came with that as well. So as we look at our lives through the eyes of Joseph and his brothers, notice that we experience God's sovereignty in redemption. As God is working to redeem his people. You see, these brothers had sinned greatly against Joseph, hadn't they? When you look at at what they had done, they had not only sinned against Joseph, But they had sinned against God. They had rejected God's revelation through Joseph. Their actions against Joseph had been first a plan to murder him, and then instead they sold him off so that they could have money. Now they stood before this incredibly powerful Egyptian ruler who had outwitted them in everything that had happened over the past few months And now he sends away his retainers. In chapter 45, verse 4, it says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. (laughs) Oh, boy. Come near to me. I am Joseph, your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. (laughs) Yeah, step down here closer, guys. I want you to see who I am. I want you to see how powerful I am. 
All of Egypt bows before me. Get on your knees, brothers. That's what you expect. That's what you think is going to happen. Talk about shock. It's a wonder that they didn't all just fall down in a faint right there. Verse 3 says, but his brothers could not answer him. Why? They were dismayed at his presence. The word translated dismay there is a very, very strong word in Hebrew. It means to be terrified. It means to be overwhelmed. It means to be fully shocked. Bad enough that he is their brother. But he brings up their sin in the midst of that. I am your brother whom you sold into Egypt. Oh, boy. I'm sure at that moment they could have died. Had he cleared the room to have them killed, captured, whatever. You see, redemption always begins first with guilt. It comes with a recognition of sin. There is no redemption if there's no need for redemption. If you don't recognize that you have rebelled against the king of the universe, that you have rebelled against the God who is sovereign over all, then you don't need redemption, do you? Jesus put it this way. He said, a healthy person doesn't need a physician. It's only the sick that need a physician. It's only the sick, the sin sick, that need a savior, that need a redeemer. Redemption has to begin with guilt. With all the interaction that Jesus had with people, notice that he didn't allow them to just kind of slide over their guilt. He never let anyone off without confronting them with their sin. Even those who received his greatest forgiveness. You think of Zacchaeus, wee little Zacchaeus, climbing up into that sycamore tree, right? The Samaritan woman at the well. The woman caught in adultery. They all had to face their sin through Jesus before they could be forgiven and redeemed out of their life of the past through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, or Joseph, I'm sorry, does not let the brothers just go, eh, that was 20 years ago, maybe he's forgotten. <laughs> no, right at the very beginning, he says, I am Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. They need to deal with their past before they can see God at work in their present. Before they can know the forgiveness that God offers. In verse 7, Joseph states, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Yes, you sinned. You have to deal with that sin. You have to know that your rebellion has been against God. You did this, and it was wrong. But God, because he is sovereign, can take even what you meant for evil, and he will turn it for his glory, and perhaps for your salvation. For it is often through our confront, being confronted with our sin that we recognize that we need the Savior as we acknowledge it and we turn to him seeking forgiveness. What is Joseph telling his brothers? God overcame your wickedness. Not God overlooked your wickedness. God overcame your wickedness. And he used it for his glory so that you might be saved. You and your family. Chapter 46 indicates just how great that redemption was. 
It says, all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. All the family. God brought to Egypt to save their lives. Oh, that we might recognize God at work in our lives as we confess before him our rebellion and our sin so that he might save us and perhaps through us reach out to the members of our family that they might come to know the truth and they too might be saved. What was true of Joseph was even more true in the life of Jesus Christ. Whether it was Herod's attempt to kill him as a toddler that sent him off to Egypt as well, the betrayal of Judas, the wickedness of the Jewish Sanhedrin that ordered our Lord killed, or the Romans who crucified him, what they meant for evil, God in his sovereignty turned around and brought through that the redemption not of 70, but of billions over the years. The redeeming cross is the proof of God's sovereignty. But notice that we also experience God's sovereignty in restoration. For 20-some years, Joseph's brothers have had to live with their guilt, hiding the fact that they were the ones that had caused their father to lose the love of life. Now Joseph has revealed himself to them. Will he get even? Will he retaliate? And the answer is no. Joseph seeks restoration of his relationship with them as brothers, as family. Why? Because Joseph was able to understand that God had sovereignly worked his purpose in all that happened up to that point. And because he was able to understand God's purpose, Joseph was able to forgive his brothers. He had tested them to see if they had a repentant heart. He had seen their deep remorse. Their transformed hearts had become apparent. And now they were able to be restored. So Joseph does what is totally unexpected as we read this for the first time. Verses 14 and 15 say, Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and he wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Under any other circumstances, the bitterness of being enslaved and in prison for 13 years would turn a normal person into a bitter person. 13 years to let that rot within him. Instead, Joseph has seen God's hand at work from the beginning. Most of us aren't like that, but Joseph was. He saw God at work in his life, and he trusted God through it all. And so now, rather than become bitter and angry, Joseph seeks restoration with his brothers. At the right moment, he is like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, who runs to the son and kisses him. And so Joseph does to them. He is a type of the perfection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who while hanging on the cross, looked out upon the crowd and said, Father, forgive them. Redemption leads to restitution of relationships when we see that God is sovereignly working even in the brokenness of the lost for the glory of God. But notice also we experience God's sovereignty in the rewards that come as a result of trusting him in it all. Now there's a false teaching going around the 
Christian circles, that those who become Christians are going to have health and wealth. Perhaps that's because they're looking at stories like this one that we have here with Joseph's brothers, or perhaps the promises of the land and, and the blessings for those who keep the old covenant that we see in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's easy to see where that idea could come from. When we look at verse 20, for instance, in our text, have no concern for your goods, for the best of the land of Egypt is yours. But that's a false understanding of this passage. See, what Joseph is telling them is that what they have lost while living in the land of famine, that is, living in the land <laughs> where they were uh, in Canaan at that time, that was going to be made up by the fullness of the land in Goshen. God sovereignly prepared for their salvation and their provision through those years of famine. Well, that also is the story of the cross and the story of redemption. Jesus Christ is saying the same thing to you and to me. He's saying, have no concern for your sin-cursed things of this life. The things that are going to pass away. The fields and, and the fruit trees and things that wither in this world because it's under the curse of sin and of death. Don't cling to what you own the places that you've plowed and planted, the investments of your past. Let them go and come on down to the place where God is going to give you life abundant and eternal. Jesus told the woman at the well that when she wanted him to give her water so she wouldn't have to carry the jar back and forth to the well and Jesus said, no, you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. I'm going to give you the water of life that will well up within you to eternal life. God is not taking us to Egypt. God is taking us to eternity. His redemption is not for this life. It is for eternal life. Will you, my friends, let go of the things that you are clinging to in this world the things that you've worked so hard to accumulate and gather together, and instead, will you move to Goshen? Will you move to the Garden of Eden? Those are, are symbols of the fact of what God has prepared for us that the Scripture says is beyond any human imagination. for the place of eternal blessings. Isaiah describes it this way. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. He goes on to say, why invest in the things of this life when they are passing? Buy what is permanent, what is eternal do you hear the Lord's invitation coming out to you? Will you receive him today? Will you come to Goshen? Will you come to Christ and find in him sustenance for life, the true fruit, life abundant and eternal? All of that we have said so far concerning the necessity of recognizing God's sovereignty in our lives and of receiving God's sovereignty leads to the final point. God is glorified by reaffirming his sovereignty over our lives. Those who recognize and receive God's sovereignty will be transformed by that truth. Surely Joseph's life was changed as he recognized that God was working in all of those situations. As he saw God's sovereign plan, Jacob had reflected on what 
he heard and what he saw, and as a result of that, saw and knew that God was at work, and it changed the way that he viewed the world. But the greatest change in all of this story takes place in a man named Judah. For Judah was the fourth son of Jacob, and it was Judah who had instigated the selling of Joseph as a slave. Judah, however, we saw in the last chapter, had repented. His heart had been changed. And we see how all of that works out in chapter 46, verse 28. He, Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. You know, you can kind of read past that without recognizing what's going on. Judah, the one who sold Joseph into slavery, is now the one that is going down and working side by side with Joseph so that they can prepare the way for Jacob and the family to come down. Restoration, but more transformation. God is at work changing hearts and changing lives. So notice that we engage God's sovereignty in our reorientation of how we see the world. When we come to believe that God is sovereignly at work in our lives, our whole perspective on life is transformed. The way that we conduct ourselves must change. And that's why Joseph gives the warning that he does to his brothers in chapter 45, verse 24. Then he sent his brothers away with all that stuff the wagons and everything, sent them away. And as they departed, he had one word of warning for them. Don't quarrel on the way. If their hearts have not been changed, then they are going to quarrel. Why are they going to quarrel? Well, what are we going to tell our father when we get back? How are we going to get around this one, guys? We've got to tell dad that we sold Joseph and we lied to him for 20 years. You know what? How about if we just get rid of Benjamin? <laughs> right? Because he's the only one that knows the other story besides Joseph. And, you know, maybe we can work something else out and get rid of him. Simeon, who had sat down in the jail while the brothers had frittered away time until they were forced to go back to Egypt because they had no food, Simeon could have gotten into a brawl with his brothers. Reuben, who was the oldest, could have looked at Judah and said, see, I told you that's not what you were supposed to do. We were supposed to... He could have done all that. Joseph says to him, if your hearts are really changed, don't quarrel. See God's hand at work and rest in what God is doing. Boy, what lessons we could learn in our families if we would start seeing the world from God's perspective and be changed. Perhaps the Apostle Paul put it best in Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. As you meditate on God's sovereignty, as you accept that God is working all things for the good, then you'll be less likely to respond in sinful ways to what's happening in your life. Notice also we engage God's sovereignty in our repentance. Before we'll ever understand God's sovereignty and rest in it, we need to first repent of our willful rebellion. The ten brothers, they're on their way back to their dad, and they've got to say something like this. Hi, Dad. Guess what? We lied to you 22 years ago. Joseph wasn't killed by a wild beast. We made it all up, and we killed a lamb, and made his coat bloody. We made up that story because we hated his guts. We were jealous. So we sold him as a slave to Egypt, to some Ishmaelite traders. But he's now head over all of Egypt. That's basically what lies behind verse 26. And they told him, 
Joseph is still alive. He's the ruler over all the land of Egypt, and his heart became numb, for he didn't believe them. As long as you or I are harboring resentment and bitterness, we're trying to cover up our past or make excuses for our sinful behavior, we'll never be able to see God's hand at work in our lives. Only Jesus Christ has ever been able to, at every moment of every day, rest in the sovereign plan of God. The rest of us have rebelled against God. We have hated people. We have hated God at times. We've been resentful. We've been bitter. We've cursed people out. And all the while, God was actively at work, and we missed it. Why? Because of our own self-centeredness and self-focus. And so we crucified him. We didn't just sell him as a slave. We betrayed the very Son of God. We rejected God's plan and his purpose. We demanded our own way, just as Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. And every human heart has consistently rejected God from that time on, just as Joseph's brothers did when they fought against Joseph in his dreams. Repentance is the first step of seeing God's sovereignty and being caught up in what God wants to do in your life, will you let him? Will you learn to rest in his sovereign work in you? Or will you continue to fight against him? In conclusion, are you resting in the sovereignty of God? Have you seen his hand at work and you say, God, no matter what comes into my life, I know that you are there, you're working it out for my good, for your glory. Or are you manipulating your life in hopes that God will ignore your willful rebellion? Or that he'll kind of manipulate life to fit into your manipulation? May God forgive us, cleanse our heart, bring us to repentance so that we might see his sovereignty. Overall, let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that you are sovereign overall. What a message that is that we can give to all the people all over the world. If we would bring our lives into line with you, then we would be able to declare to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, what Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God sent me before you. God did what he has done in my life so that I might be able to tell you how God can save your life. Oh, Father, work in us until that becomes clear to us so that we might persevere in our walk with you as we rest in that comfort that knows that God is sovereign over all. Amen.